When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. So I remember probably five, six years ago, I was around during the weekend and Tep, my eldest son, who's a super passionate skier, all of a sudden it's like really quiet in the house. And if you're a parent, you know that moment where you're like, hang on, I haven't heard anything for 45 minutes. Like, like, wait a second. Like I've just gotten way too much done. Something clearly is wrong. And I remember like wandering down the hall towards his room and we keep a pretty streamlined bookshelf. Mostly we go to the library. I would have tons of books otherwise, but our bookshelf is in his sort of playroom. And I go in there and I look over and he's got this, he's got one of our books open. The 50 classic ski descents of North America. And this book, it was written by a couple of my friends probably about 12 years ago. They're very ridgy. Yep. And coolars. A lot of big steep mountains, right? Yeah. It has all these incredible ski lines. There are a lot of rocks, too. It's really cool in the sense that I'll take these beautiful photos of it. They don't really show you where you would go down this mountain. Sometimes it's really obvious. Sometimes it's a coolar. But he was sitting there, and with his, he was tracing how he imagined getting down each of these mountains. Rocky. Steep. Rocky. <laughs> They're pretty gnarly, aren't they? Like, where do you even go? Where would you go on this line when you look at this? Like, what is the line off this? You're tracing it? Yeah. Do you, could you imagine yourself doing that? No. The lines in this book, they're burly. Some of them aren't crazy, but a lot of it taken as a whole, it's pretty burly. And I remember Tep asking, has anyone skied them all? And I looked at him and I said, nope, that would probably take a lifetime.
Typically, we kick off each year with our annual year of big ideas. It's always been a highlight for me, almost as long as we've had this show. We interview our staff, our friends, and you, our listeners, asking, what are you hoping to accomplish this upcoming year? From big walls to volcano skiing, through hikes and traverses, to helping our communities, it's always humbling and impressive to hear how people are trying to get outdoors, learn more about themselves, get stoked, enjoy the natural world, and make this place a little bit better. This year, we're going to do something a little bit different. We'll call it the year of a big idea. Inspiration can come from so many different places, from within us, the natural world, friends, family. Sometimes we find it when we open the pages of a good old-fashioned book. Today, to kick off the new year, I sit down with someone who's tried to squeeze a lifetime of skiing into a few years, Cody Townsend. Long known for his part in annual ski films, Cody has had a long career as a professional skier, longer than most. His ski lines have gone viral, He's won awards from Powder Magazine back when that was a thing. But a few years ago, he essentially decided to reinvent himself in skiing. And it started with this book, The 50 Classic Ski Descents of North America. So here we go. Here's to big ideas. Happy New Year's, everyone. I'm Fitzcahal, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Yeah, my name is Cody Townsend. I'm a professional skier going on like 20 plus years of it. And I live in Lake Tahoe, California. The most basic way to describe it is there is this book called The 50 Classic Ski Descents of North America. It is based off of the climbing book, The 50 Classic Climbs of North America. And um, it's me trying to ski all of them. And that's that's how I lay it out. You know, this book, it's kind of more of a tribute to the mountains. It's not like a guide or anything like that. It's just like these glorious lines and mountains from across North America. And they're beautiful. They're aesthetic. They're challenging. They've got all different varieties from pretty easy entry-level backcountry ski lines to some of the most challenging lines in the world. When it came out in 2010, I was still in the middle of like my main chunk of my freeride career. I remember like flipping through the book once, closing it back up and throwing it into my bookshelf. And it sat there for five, maybe six years before I picked it back up again. Um, when I first read it, it had no impact on me because I was in a stage in my skiing where I was obsessed with downhill performance, with free ride lines, with, you know, going up to Alaska in helicopters and trying to backflip off huge cliffs and ski lines as fast as possible. So this like slower methodical climb for your own line style of ski mountaineering, like it had no bearing on my life at that time. So when I first got it, it was kind of an irrelevant book to me. And then do you remember when you opened the book back up and it meant something new to you? The idea for something within the more human-powered element of skiing, within more ski mountaineering style, started to come to me before I even opened the book. I I even thought about the book before flipping it back open again. And when I did open it up, 
I remember just like seeing these lines and being like, wait a minute, the Grand Teton, like you'd want to ski that before you die, right? And then this line, University Peak in Alaska, that looks like one of the greatest ski lines in the world. Like you'd want to try and ski that, right? And as I like flipped through it, I just kept seeing like these things like speaking to me and it kind of had this like bucket list style mentality to me where it was like, before I'm done with skiing, like, of course I want to ski off the top of the Grand. Of course I want to ski Denali. And it was the first time I looked at this book and was like, wait a minute, like, this is something you want to do now. This is an idea that could guide the next 10 years of your life. And then everything just started snowballing from there. So I think one of the craziest parts about Cody's goal with the 50, no one, not even the three authors of the book, have skied all 50 lines. It was an open challenge, just waiting for the right person to come along and try it. And it merits saying, by all metrics, many of these lines are outrageously burly. And some of them are quite dangerous. Some have only been skied a handful of times, and many require extended stretches of 50-plus degree angle skiing. It's pretty white-knuckled stuff. You fall, you die terrain with serious overhead hazard. And while some of these lines are pretty straightforward and awesome and classic, many of them, and especially when you look at the project as a whole, what Cody is attempting is not for the faint of heart. When I first started thinking about it, it was actually in like 2016. And I, over the course of a few years, had started to kind of research these lines and research kind of each individual mountain and start to like put the puzzle piece together mentally to see like, would I be capable of skiing all these lines? And in my research, I, I, I didn't find or come across anyone that seemed like they were going after skiing all 50 of them. Although all of the lines in the book had been skied once, no one had tried to ski all 50. And that to me was actually a huge red flag. I was like, well, there's a lot of very accomplished ski mountaineers out there, like really good ones. So why is someone not trying to ski all of them? It seems so obvious. And I really had to like take a step back and really kind of look at myself, look at my skills and really analyze these lines individually to see like, are you going to be able to try to do this one day? And it wasn't until the summer of 2018 when I at that point, there was this long, years-long process to get there of committing to like, all right, this is what you're going to do. The next five years of your life are going to be devoted to skiing all these lines. One of the first people I told was Chris Davenport, one of the authors of the book. And he, I remember the first thing he said, he's like, we've been waiting for someone to try to do this. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I was kind of weird that no one has tried this before. Subsequently, a couple months later, I found out there's this really amazing backcountry skier out of Utah, uh, Noah Howell, who had been kind of quietly in the background doing them and blogging about them, which was kind of funny because in my, all my research, I kept coming across his blog. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that makes sense now. He's done like 20 of the lines and he blogs about it but nowhere has he said that like hey I'm trying to do all 50 so it wasn't until then that we we realized that and Davenport actually asked me he's like well what are you going to do like that seems like his project and by that point I was so kind of mentally committed to it I was like it's not you know, it's not changing anything for me like I want to try this at that point in my life and being kind of such an, uh, a newbie 
to Ski Mountaineering, it wasn't about like going out there to be the first person to do all 50. To me, that likelihood is actually quite low. Like you are just getting into ski mountaineering. Although you have a wealth of ski experience and mountain experience and snow experience, this style of skiing, you're a veritable Gumby in. So to me, it was like, no, I'm not trying to be the first. I just am motivated to try to do this for myself. So when I found out like Noah was trying to do it, it really didn't affect anything personally because it was like I was going to regret it for the rest of my life if I didn't try. And that came with the knowledge too that the most likely outcome is I'm not going to finish. But I knew it was like, like, how do I say this? Like I knew at that point in my life, the likelihood of finishing this project was like pretty low. But when I realized like that I was going to regret it the rest of my life to not try, that's when I knew I had to do it. Because at that point, it became much more about the trying aspect and not like you're going out there to accomplish doing all 50. You're not out there to like check it off the list, to be the first person to do it. It wasn't about that. And that was like this deeply personal spot that made me realize like you have to do this. Most athletes that do a sport at a professional level, they don't change positions halfway through their career. I mean, maybe the closest might be like that a striker in soccer might jump back to midfield, right? Or something like that. But but mostly it's like, no, you're you're a running back. You're a a goalie. You're something like that. And you maintain the same sort of position your entire career. And almost what you've done is you've totally changed the position you play in sort of mid-stride in the middle of your career. Do you see it like that, where you took a really clear pivot of being like, wow, there's the side of this sport that I know a little bit about, but realistically, maybe just enough to get yourself into trouble. And I'm going to go maybe potentially suck at something, but my desire is so strong to visit those places that it might lead me to that I'm willing to kind of take that chance and kind of go a completely different direction from what you had been so good at and had received so much credit for. It was like a very, very conscious decision to completely pivot. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And there was one specific moment and it was when I skied that line called the crack, it went super viral. I won a bunch of awards and it was on like sports center and it was like the pinnacle of my career. And you keep getting this question, what's next? How are you going to top that? And I remember really thinking, I'm like, I got nothing to top that. I've got nothing next in that lane of the sport. I felt like I'd been working my whole life to that point. And at that moment was like this really weird, almost malaise of being like, well, yeah, what are you going to do? And also this like self-awareness that like that realm of the sport isn't driving you like it once used to. And instead, looking to this other realm and being like, I see these people going on expeditions. I see these people climbing for their own lines that I had been flying, flying helicopters to. And I saw this like kind of world that I was like, there's something out there that I don't know. And it wasn't until 2016. And 
at that point, I'd kind of like started to move away from free ride skiing, but it wasn't just like a quick snap. I knew I wasn't going to just learn this whole side of the sport overnight. And I went on my first trip to Alaska. That was a base camping trip and a climbing trip. And I will never forget it snowed six feet in 36 hours. And as skiers, we all know that Alaska is like magic land. We know the snow is just like, it's like nowhere else on the planet, but I never understood how it actually worked. And it wasn't until I slept in the snow, slept out there through a six foot storm and watched this six foot storm go from one of the most unstable, crazy snowpacks to in the course of like five days, unbelievably perfect. And watching like the diurnal temperature fluctuations, watching the moisture get sucked out of the snow at night, watching the whole snowpack stabilize. And I realized I'd spent 10 years in Alaska heli skiing, but I still had no idea how the snow actually works. And it wasn't on that trip that I realized like there is so, so much more to know about these mountains. And then when you started to climb lines and you're all of a sudden realizing like, oh, that unstable snow mushroom that I'm climbing under for three hours, like I used to fly by that at three in three seconds and not worry about it at all. Now I all of a sudden have to worry about it, worry about when the sun is going to hit it. When, it, when is it going to be unstable? How do I navigate around it? And all these things. And I just realized it like opened my eyes to this whole new world. And at that point, it was like this, this feeling like I almost felt like a fraud. And that like, you're a professional skier and you know nothing about the mountains. So like, now it's time to go learn. With that intention and a learner's mentality, Cody started out on his journey of trying to tackle all 50 lines. He gave himself three years to do it. Logistically, that's a test. The lines are spread out across the country in Canada. It's often safest to tackle many of these high alpine lines in the spring when the snowpack tends to be settled. And while there are lines that are skied regularly by ambitious, competent skiers. There are some where it would be easy for even a skier of Cody's pedigree to get in over their heads if the conditions weren't perfect. The very first year, I think when we went up to Alaska to try and do this line called the Sphinx, and it's a classic heli ski line, that line ended up scaring the living shit out of me to the point where um, when we got to like the summit Ridge line, like I got this feeling of like, I can't move anymore, which is never a feeling I've ever felt. Like generally I can work through fear. I'd spent 15 years as a free ride skier, like talking yourself through these battles of fear and like drawing on prior experiences to, to get yourself to that next step. And when we were climbing, it was really, really bad snow conditions, super hard pack. And the final pitch was probably like between 55 and 58 degrees. And it was just like the air under my heels, that, that feeling of your chest gripping the snow, no protection, no ropes. And just like, I had no prior experience to draw upon in that moment. It was so new and so fresh to me to be climbing something that steep. Yeah, it scared the living crap out of me. This snow is awful. I think this has got sun effect on it. That's why it's crappy. Ugh. Good job, man. Oh, that feels good. Right? How you doing? Oh, scared. Not that great. 
I have climbed that stuff that's deep, but they just haven't started out right. And I mean, I probably spent an hour on the ridgeline, just like getting yourself through it and then skiing back down. And we didn't accomplish the line. We didn't go to the very summit. We skied from this like lower ridgeline. And I just remember like drawing on that being like, man, like you actually have a lot further to go when it comes to these, these climbing skills, when it comes to these experiences. And the way I've always dealt with fear is drawing on prior experiences to continually like baby step your way up. And at that moment, I thought I bit off too much more than I could chew. Like it was a real, real humbling moment. And in the, in that moment with the with that feeling of being like, oh, I've maybe bitten off more than I can handle right now. Did that produce a feeling of maybe like, oh, I want to quit? Or did it produce sort of just a digging in of determination? It definitely was a digging in of determination. You know, it's those moments when when you are scared And you have that feeling like, I wish I wasn't here right now, but you don't have the option to not be there anymore. Those are the processes I like to work myself through. And I like scared myself in that moment because I realized it was taking me so long to work myself through it. When we got down to the bottom and although this I had two hours spent was just a pit in my stomach and feeling scared and feeling like you're not worthy of of this project, of this idea that you're, you're trying to do. What I did realize as soon as I got down was, well, this is an experience I can draw from. This is something to build upon. So although I flew all the way up to Alaska, spent thousands of dollars to go out there, had all this time and, and failed at the objective, I also knew like, but this is something that you can build upon. And that was like how I looked at it was like, even though it's a failure, it's a stepping stone. So, Cody, these are high-stress situations. You're doing this very publicly. Did you feel pressure or stress once you started? So, like, when I first said I was going to do this, that was actually almost what felt like the hardest part of this project to begin with. Originally, when I thought about it, I was like, okay, just like go disappear for five years and then like try to do them all and then make a movie about it at the end. And then I realized I was like, huh, unfortunately, as a professional skier, it's pretty hard to just disappear from the public's eye for five years. And I had to get like really comfortable with being like, oh my God, like you don't know this world. You are completely going into it as what I felt like a newbie. And you're going to announce to the world, this is what you're going to do over the next few years. Like that was by far the biggest hurdle to me. Like I was so nervous hitting publish on that first video because it was like, you just created a public commitment that people are going to hold you accountable for for the next three years. And I said three years, like I was going to try it in three years, not because I was like, I'm going to try and do it super fast, but mainly because I was like, I'm going to give it three years. And if I don't like this after three years, then I'm going to stop, but I'll give myself three years to do it. And there's this other kind of side factor of we as professional skiers get pulled a hundred different ways of shoots here, there's sponsor obligations there. And I also wanted to tell my sponsors, I'm like, Nope, this is all I'm doing. Count me out of all shoots is the only thing I'm doing, which was kind of a nice little thing to be like, sorry, I, I'm just doing my project. I can't do anyone else's. Were there even lines that you kind of squeaked through in the beginning that you're like, that is quote unquote a success, but not actually ideal? Um, when people ask me like what 
do you think is the episode that best personifies the 50? I point to Split, which came out this year. And we had kind of tried it, or at least gone to the base of it in 2019, and found vastly different conditions than we expected. We turned around. And then over the next four years, I've spent scouting it. And then in even this last season, attempted three different times before successfully finally skiing it. And that line, like, looking at so that way just that's like five total attempts basically yeah and I, that doesn't even count probably the two or three times i just walked up into the basin by myself with no no intentions of skiing it but just to scout conditions so i'd probably been at the base of split like eight times i would say and you know that line like it had a lot of personal weight to it because I had a, a friend and a mentor who was a, a guide and an incredibly accomplished skier and an incredibly talented ski mountaineer who was killed in that line in 2011. And because he was a friend, because he was someone I looked up to, there was, a, there was an extra gravity to that line because knowing like, hey, this, this guy who you really, really respected and who you thought is so good at this sport was unfortunately killed in this line, him and his partner, his girlfriend. It was this feeling like uh, there, there was a lot of personal weight to it. Like one, did I even want to go up there? Did I want to ski a line that killed a hero of mine? Did I want to try to put myself in those situations? Did I want, did I feel like it was even like worth it? Like, was it like worth it to tick it off for this project? And it did feel almost like disrespectful. I did, there was a lot of things going into it. And I, it, I still almost don't even know what to feel about it, but I feel like it was the embodiment of kind of what ski mountaineering is, is like, this is like a really dangerous sport. We are constantly dealing with overhead hazard. We have avalanches, cornice falls, rock falls. It's like coulars are gutters of the mountains they are things that you just have to roll the dice on but you also try to figure out how to minimize your and mitigate the risk as best as possible and so a line like split it really like i don't know i went through a lot of mental battles over number of years and to get it done in a way that i look back on and be like you know what we we did it respectfully. We did it in the way that I think was the safest possible way. And sure, it was still dangerous and it took a lot of figuring out and a lot of time spent with that mountain. But it like, I don't know, I, I look at that as like one of the biggest accomplishments for myself just because it was this, this it was a personal growth that I had to go through to, to do that line. Yeah, it's it's always fascinating, right? And, and tricky listening to how people navigate those risk assessment matrices. On the flip side of that coin, has there been a moment where it just seemed like the world was smiling on you and you found yourself at the top of a line and everything just aligned and it seemed perfect? I Yeah, it happened actually... It's happened every year, but I think it really was accentuated by this year going to Baffin Island um, with Vivian Bruchet and cameraman Bjarne Salen. And it wasn't even in one of the classic lines. We had checked that line off and then we were like, cool, we're here in nine days in Baffin. Let's go skiing. And we skied this line called the Model T. And 
as you're skiing down this big, wide open basin that kind of funnels down into just what looks like the abyss. Like it's just this big bowl and it just looks like it kind of drops off into nothing. And we knew there was a big chalk stone there and that we might have to set up an anchor and rappel. And as we got down into it and the snow was like really good, Vivian kind of goes around this corner and spots this little tunnel. And it's a tunnel that is like maybe three feet high by two feet wide. And he like yelling up to us laughing like we could fit through this. Oh, wow. (laughs) Very, very, very small hole, but uh, maybe okay. <laughs> That's work perfect, my friend. It goes through. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's crazy, my friend. Woo! No oh my god, way. this is so sick. That's so cool. Okay, I'm dropping. Okay. Ah! Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like this like magical experience. Like, of course, we would like ski this line that we have no idea about. We skied it top down and go find a like a little portal to ski through. And you come through this portal and then you find one of the most majestic couloirs on the planet in the most perfect snow and you're skiing it until your legs are absolutely smoked and laughing and yelling the entire time. It was just like, I don't know, yeah, that was all time. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Support for the Diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. A few years deeper into the 50, Cody returned to the Sphinx, that jaw-dropping line in Alaska he had tried during the first year, the one where he was almost crippled by fear on and had to turn around. Then he returned with more experience and more realistic expectations. Uh, It was like night and day. Like I was almost like laughing about how comfortable I was the second time there. Granted, we had far better snow conditions, but it was just night and day. And 
that line and that process is like really what stood out to me as, as a whole for this project. Like these lines that you had failed on and then come back to, I draw upon those experiences more than almost any other ones because there's this sense of growth. There's this sense of learning. There's this sense of like, yes, like this is how you get through this idea. This is how you continue to move through the mountains. And it, it really like, I just was like so happy because I wasn't that scared. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> you, you mentioned that moment when you sort of hit upload for that first video of, of stating your intent. You know, that, that was a, a moment where you're very vulnerable. And I think that one of the things you've done really well is you've been vulnerable on camera in a way that typically in ski media has, that's not really been a part of ski media of people talking through their, their choices or, you know, always seeing that. And I, did you, as you move forward, as you got interactions with your audience, like, did you see that that being able to be vulnerable, to be scared, to, to show um, what quote unquote might be considered weakness is actually part of a growth pattern? Like, have you almost been consciously thinking about, Hey, maybe we need to talk about this more openly. You know, I would actually say, it was a long developing thing for me because as I became a professional skier, as I became and went out there and won awards and did all this stuff, like I got this feeling that people thought you're like a superhero because I once looked at my favorite skiers growing up as superheroes and I'm like, no, 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 I'm not a superhero. I'm just like a really obsessed skier. I just love this more than anything. And so like, I felt like it was kind of a goal this weird goal in life to tell people like i'm not a superhero like i'm just normal like i just really like skiing and so i think when i like started to like come up with the idea for the project and especially on the media side of things what i really wanted to do is like i want to show people that like we get scared we're not superheroes because like every time i figured out that like my idols were human is when I felt like connected to them. And so I was like, yeah, I don't want this like barrier between the audience and myself. Like I just want them to them to know like we're human too. We have the exact same fears that you do as an everyday backcountry skier. You have the same decisions you have to make on a normal backcountry ski day as I do on a very gnarly line like Split Kular and Split Mountain. There's this like, I don't know, I just felt related to the everyday skier and I didn't want this barrier between myself and them. I end up talking about a risk a lot and a lot of the project is based upon risk and based upon safety and trying to come home at the end of the day to the point where I almost get tired of talking about it but I also realize that like I also this this goal of coming home at the end of the day and this goal of being there is like it's really important but i also look at it as like a rebellion to a lot of the mountaineering and alpinism culture that i grew up reading about and i saw like the hardness of men the like the do anything at all cost to get to the summit and this this feeling like it was more honorable to die in the mountains and try than it was to turn around. And I just remember feeling like, no, it's not like I'm out here. Cause it's fun. Like it's, we're not changing the world. Like whether I stand on top of a summit and ski a line doesn't change anything in the course of history. Like 
that is not the personal experience I am having with this. And so like, I also feel like this risk talk, like it's not just about like trying to preserve life because we're all going to die at some point. And in the meantime, the cliche of the only thing we're going to do in the in-between is what defines your life. But like, also I look at it as like this as a rebellion to a culture that I didn't like this, like alpha male, super macho, go die in the mountains, like a man kind of feeling that I just, I don't know. It wasn't the experience I got as a skier. It wasn't the experience I got when going into the mountains. So I almost like talking about risk is like a rebellion against that in general, because like, Hey, I'm just, we're out here having fun. (laughs) Who cares? Like come home. Having, becoming a dad during this whole process. um, Do you think that it's changed how you get to the sort of place where you're like, oh, this is a green light today. Because some some people don't change after they have kids. They're like, oh, no, I trust my process before. I was like kind of cautious, like I'm going to keep using the same sort of decision-making tree to, to arrive that I was before. And then some people really change because it's been four years of this project. Your son is like a year, two years old, right? So part of this project happened before, part of this project happened after. Yeah. How's that? How's that worked? Like, how do you get to, to say yes? Yeah. So I, I kind of fit into that prior can't be described. I try to look back and say, like, no, not much has actually changed because previous to having a son, I had set it out as a very explicit goal that your goal is to come home at the end of the day. And that sounds so obvious to most people. You're like, of course your goal is not to die. But when you're in the mountains, when you're really driven, when you have spent your entire summer dreaming about, I don't know, some very particular line, backflipping off a huge cliff, going down a spine line in Alaska at Makaluni speeds and hitting a 60-foot air at the exit, like you're thinking about that. And you're not thinking like, hey, like your goal is to come home at the end of the day first. Your second goal is to do that challenging thing. And you can get really caught up in the process of continually one-upping yourself, accomplishing your dreams. And it wasn't until like I started losing a lot of my friends and a lot of heroes that I really looked up to when I realized like, wait a minute, like you're caught up in that same sort of cycle and you maybe have to start thinking a little bit differently. And I did radically change the way I approach the mountains. I will say I still ended up doing what could be considered very dangerous things like skiing the crack, but it was a very conscious decision. The crack to me didn't seem like it was that extreme at that point in my life. I had been working my way up to it. So moving into this project, I looked at it, I was like, I have to think about it that same way. Like your goal from day one is, your goal is to come home at the end of the day. Like I've actually listed it out, I've said it many times in episodes. There's three goals of this project. One, don't die. Two, have fun. Three, ski all the 50. And it is specific and in that order. And if you look like you're gonna break rule one, you're out. If If you are breaking rule two, like why are you doing this? And then rule three, like whatever ski the 50, try, give yourself a little motivation, try, but like try and come home at the end of the day. But to like sum it up as saying like, I think my decision-making has been quite rational with an intentional goal to come home at the end of the day. I will say having a son at home, it changes you. When you're on those margins, when you're in that feeling of like, 
it's a yellow flag day, probably get away with it. That's where I am backing down these days. And I couldn't be happier for that because I know the amount of joy that my son brings me. I know the the levels of enjoyment and happiness I have with my son are equal to some of the best moments I've ever had in the mountains. It's like a different branch of the tree, but it's the exact same level. And to continually put skiing as like the only thing I'm focused on is not only disregarding my own emotions, but it's disregarding the needs of my family. And so while I still enjoy skiing, still want to do challenging things, I do know at the margins, like my goal is going to be to come home to my son at the end of the day, every single time. I think the biggest thing I've realized is that having a, a great challenge in your life, having a great goal is really important. And it is the thing that you can be used to motivate you, to drive you, to like get up every day and go for a run, to get up every day and eat right, to get up every day and have a healthy relationship with everyone around you, to like just to keep driving forward. But the one thing I've realized in that process, and as cliche as it is, it's the truth that it really is the steps and the journey along the way. I've gotten to a point where I've done 46 of them, and I don't plan to walk away from it yet, but I could today walk away from it because it really has been an incredible journey. And I feel so fortunate to have been able to learn from so many amazing partners that I've gone in the mountains with the ability to travel across North America and ski some of the most iconic lines in the world. It's like, that is insane. And if I had to look back and if I'm obsessed that I didn't do two and I finished at 48 and not 50, then I completely this whole thing up because staring back at I got to ski the Grand Teton with Jimmy Chin. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I got to go like ski touring with Greg Hill and ski some of the best powder snow on one of the best ski lines of my life with a guy who is the master of those mountains. I've gotten to like be introduced to people like Len Nessifer and Connor Ryan who have like changed the way I look at our land and our relationship with land and our American history. And I'm just like, this is like the amount of growth and the amount of opportunities I've had because of setting out on this project is pretty immeasurable. And if there's only one thing that I can think regret about it is like, man, it, it's gone a little too fast. Like I did 20 lines in the first year. I kind of wish I did 10 and gave myself a little bit more time in between so I can kind of truly cherish it. And that's like, I think my biggest takeaway because every single line I've done, there's something memorable from it. Whether it was the people, whether it was the snow conditions, whether it was the, the views, whether it was the challenge, whether it was like learning a new skill, like every single line, I have something I can take away with. And that's been by far the most rewarding thing about this project. So you're almost done. There's four lines left. The Comstock Coulard has 
thwarted you twice because of weather. And then there's three other lines. What are they? Three of them happen to be the three hardest lines. Really, really saved myself up the the hard ones for the end. And there there was purpose to that. Was that in, yeah? Was that intentional or just kind of you just didn't yeah. do your homework till the last second? <laughs> no, I had actually thought I was like for strategic ways. I thought it was like smarter to try and do the hardest ones every year. But then it honestly was that first year and the challenges and the limitations I knew for myself is like, whoa, you are not ready for University Peak or Mount St. Elias. But over these next four years of doing 46 lines, that'll help get you ready for those, which goes back to some of the original intent of this entire project. It was like, I said it, I think in one of the first episodes of being like, I set out to learn the mountains in a whole new way. And this project is just a great excuse to go learn the mountains in a whole new way. So although I have the three hardest left, never have I felt more prepared for those last three. The flip side of that is that things have changed in my life. I have a family. I have a son. There is, as you age, as you get into this, you you know the dangers of, of this sport. You, you have friends, like 20 plus friends that you've lost along the way. So that balance of being going into these hard lines with the confidence that like, yeah, you have the skills, you have acquired a wealth of information about moving through the mountains like this. But at the same time, with that knowledge comes the fact that it is incredibly dangerous and there are certain risks you just cannot mitigate. And so it's going to be a continual balance. My kind of thing at this point is there are two lines I've never even been to the base of. And I at least want to go to the base of those lines and look up at them and spend some time with those mountains. And that might be going there to the base of the mountain for the next four years before even making decision whether to attempt or not attempt. Because the, you know, the dangers that come with these lines is the kind of dangers I don't like in the mountains where you are sometimes just rolling the dice. Either you are, you can do so many things to mitigate it but when you're climbing under a Serac for seven hours at that point, your entire life is just hanging by the whims of 10,000 year old ice and whether it decides to break today or not. And those are the kind of risks that I'm going to have to kind of think about and process as you go into these last few lines. And and then you said University and, and St. Elias what was the, and there's Comstock, obviously, which has been that has looked tortuous. Um, what, was the, what was the fourth one? Uh, uh, North Face of Mount Robson. Okay, gotcha. Oh, that's also, that's a, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that one goes, I, you know, I always tell people when they're like, North Face of Mount Robson, what's that? I'm like, do you remember The Alpinist, the movie? Like, just right next to that, where Marc-Andre Leclerc climbed, like, that's where I'm supposed to ski, just a little over to the left. So, yeah, that comes with it. Luckily for that one, like that one is less about, I actually think like it's well within the realm of ski ability, climb ability. It's actually pretty straightforward. It's just more this thing of you have to be there on the perfect day because it is a, th- a thousand meter ice wall and you need 
six inches to 10 inches of spackle snow to miraculously stick to blue ice and then be able to get yourself down. The, the hazards of the line are actually on the lower end. It's just more like you need a miraculous set of conditions to make it skiable. And that is the, the other thing I've learned through this project is climate change has really taken its number on these lines. And I've watched these lines kind of change in the five years I started doing it, and then in the 25 and 30 years since the first people that skied these lines and looking at historic pictures and realizing, like, that's an entirely different line. It's 100% different now. So you're pretty close to the end of this in a way, 46 out of 50. Um, throughout throughout it, you've been super candid. You've been really transparent about the process, both the, the good parts and the bumpy parts, uh, especially around risk. And, you know, you've also acknowledged that you've, you've, you know, lost a lot of friends. What keeps you drawn to this? Because you have had, a, at this stage, a long career. Like, where does, where does that motivation keep coming from? I'm, a, I'm an open book. I'm like, I talk about everything. And I'm totally, that kind of stuff is what I'm most fascinated in and ideas. And I kind of think a lot about this stuff quite philosophically because, um, you know, when you when you have a certain attraction to the mountains and to challenging things, and then you experience the reality of the dangers and the dark side associated with it, you start to become philosophical about these things. I don't think you can't because, you know, you, you're thinking like, why? Why am I doing this? Why am I drawn to these things? And so, like, I, I think about that stuff a lot. And I think about that in the context of this project, my whole career, my whole life. And it's always like, it's kind of always been a goal of mine my entire life to figure out, like, why the hell am I attracted to this stuff? Because it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Have you figured it out at this stage? No, no, I, I don't think I ever will. I've definitely been on a search to figure it out. And I think, you know, you have your ideas about it. But I think that's part of the mystery of life is that you don't know exactly what brings you happiness. You don't exactly know what the meaning of being here is. And as you seek it out and as you figure your own path through it, you, you learn about it. You learn about yourself. You learn about your community. You learn about the environment and you try and place your yourself within those things. And, you know, by the end of my life, I hope to have learned some lessons that you can pass on to the next generation and maybe they'll figure it out. <laughs> Thanks, Cody, for joining the show and sharing your big idea. If you're interested, you can catch up on Cody's journey at youtube.com backslash at Cody Townsend. Also, dropping simultaneously, we have an extended conversation over on Diaries Plus. Cody and I talk about what it takes to be a professional outdoor athlete. There's no team to make, no coach, no draft. So how does one turn that into a career? Find out and support the future of the Diaries while doing so. Check out the link in our show notes. Please consider joining. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or a story lead, please give us a shout. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Music today from Jacob Bain and Nice Cotto, Luca Tomasina, Big Fight, Memory Palace, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the artist, Track Club, or Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Cotto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artist at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by me, Fitzcahal, with writing and editing by Andrew Burton and additional production help from Ashley Langholz. 
illustration by Walker Cajal. Rebecca Cajal is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Cajal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Happy New Year.